Your time is now. The world needs leaders. It's up to you to answer the call. Be better in business. Be better in life. Joined by our host, Chris Book. This is Leading by the Book. Hey, guys. Welcome to episode 22 of Leading by the Book. I'm Chris Book. Hope your week is off to a great start. Today, we have a tremendous guest, and that guest is Alistair James. Alistair is the CEO of Pier 1 Imports, and prior to his time at Pier 1, he and I worked together when he was president of Kmart, and of course, I was with Sears Holdings. And before that, Alistair worked throughout the world in a variety of executive roles for Frito-Lay and Tesco. When it comes to leadership, Alistair is a really, really great person for all of us to learn from. He's obviously got tremendously broad experience when it comes to working throughout the world. He's worked in some great companies and in some companies that were in the midst of pretty hefty turnarounds. And I think because of that, there's something for everybody in this conversation. Alistair is obviously a tremendous leader. He's a man of tremendous faith. But I think above all else, he's just a really great guy to work with. He's always pleasant. He's always dedicated to the mission. And he was somebody that impressed me immediately when he joined Sears Holdings and somebody I always looked forward to working with. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. As always, let me know what you think. Drop me a line at leadingbythebook.com. You can also shoot me a message, chris at leadingbythebook.com. I would love to hear what you think. So with that being said, here's Alistair James. So our guest today in Leading by the Book is Alistair James. And Alistair and I have a little bit of a history. We both served in various capacities. Well, I guess Alistair in one capacity, me in various capacities, but working together at Sears Holdings Corporation. Before that, Alistair, you were an executive um, with Tesco. That's right. Yeah, right. no, I, just, I got into retail uh, relatively late in my career. So I started um, as a marketeer, I worked in sales, worked in business development for Frito-Lay. Uh, I was based in Frito's European business out of the UK. Um, and that was where I really learned the majority of my <clears throat> sort of core fundamentals, if you like, to business. I was with them for just over eight years in the UK before I joined GlaxoSmithKline. And uh, I had a short interlude in between Frito and GlaxoSmithKline when I worked in internet business, certain internet business up with a couple of colleagues of mine. But it won't surprise you to know that that was the year 2000. And sure. uh, so we wound it down fairly quickly as well <laughs> when the bubble burst and uh, all of the financing dried up. Um, so I then sort of moved into GlaxoSmithKline where, again, I worked in marketing both in the UK, but then latterly globally. Um, and they had manufacturing facilities on their oral care brands, you know, in five on five continents and served over 100 markets. So I really got to the point of, uh, you know, working in many different countries at that point. But it became, frankly, too much travel. I was leaving home on a Sunday night and I was getting home on a Saturday morning and uh, and then struggling with jet lag over the weekend. So after sort of nearly three years of doing that, my wife said to me, enough's enough. <laughs> you need to do something else. So as happens sometimes in that situation, that was when I got a call um, about Tesco, joining Tesco, which is a large retailer based out of the UK. Uh, it was the third largest in the world when I joined. Um, and they were looking for predominantly marketeers who could balance a longer term perspective on building a brand and marketing plan based on consumer insight with the short-term trading realities of a retailer and trying to pull those things together as they were looking to develop their own brand business in a way um, that needed slightly more of that longer-term thinking. So I joined them in 2007 and, and frankly loved my time uh, at Tesco. Um, I was there until uh, 2014. I worked in the UK for them, uh, but I also had the, the, the joy and the experience of moving to Asia um, and working in uh, their Asian business. I, I moved the family to Shanghai and we had uh, a couple of years living and working in Shanghai, which was fascinating experience that sort of rounded out, you know, many of my sort of leadership, you know, theoretical learnings into practical ones. Um, and then after that, we returned back to the UK and I, I was in a sort of global role for them for a period of time before I joined uh, the Sears organization. Um, Eddie called and asked me if I would come and uh, lead the Kmart part of the business. And, uh, and so I said, I, I would. So I came to the U.S. in 2014, and I've been here ever since. So when you look at all of the different places you've effectively had to lead organizations, whether, whether it be Asia, whether it be Europe, whether it be in the U.S., I'm sure there are, are shared leadership principles among those. But where, where's the diversion? Where, where were there nuances or differences that, that you really had to account for? 
So, I mean, I think um, culture is where you get the biggest difference. Um, if I think about uh, Tesco, for example, or Sears, Sears was an incredibly hierarchical organization in some ways. Um, the, I mean, you'd sort of expect that given the ownership structure. You know, Eddie was the biggest shareholder and the CEO. But if I was to go back uh, and look at my other uh, businesses I've been a part of, um, Free-to-Lay was far more collaborative in its sort of inherent culture, um, as was um, GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, Tesco, again, more hierarchical. And, uh, you know, different cultures have different strengths in terms of the leadership style. So greater collaboration typically results in you getting to a better answer, ultimately, because you've incorporated more inputs. But sometimes it can be offset by the fact that you move more slowly than you do in an organization which can be more hierarchical because you can make decisions faster. Those decisions can cascade, inverted commas, through the business in a way that gets everybody lined up behind um, what you're trying to do. So I think retail naturally lends itself more to a more hierarchical structure and culture than consumer goods, because consumer goods tend to be driven by or have historically been driven by you know, marketing organizations. And therefore, the product development cycle can um, you know, be something that drives the timeline you know, a couple of years out. Uh, and therefore, you have more time to collaborate. So the, the biggest difference, really, I would observe would be that cultural shift that you get as a result of that. Um, and, you know, the positives and negatives that go with those differences in terms of perspective. You know, one interesting thing that you pointed out there, and I think it's a, a misconception that a lot of younger leaders or, or would-be younger leaders have, is this idea that you need to go in and make it a certain way. And, and your, your approach is fundamentally different in the sense that, I'm going to go in and I'm going to understand how these people, how this business works, and I'm going to best adapt to that. And th there somehow is this misconception, at least as I talk to folks, let's say between 22 and maybe 28 or 30 years of age, they, they feel that in order to get respect in the workplace, in order to be the leader that people want to follow, they have to be very autocratic, very decisive, and very strong. So we're going to go in and say, no we are going to be collaborative or we're not going to be collaborative. It's my way. Whatever it is, they feel that the, the folks that they are leading essentially need to adapt to their style of leadership. And quite often, in fact, just about all the time, the best path is quite the opposite, whereas the leader has to be a little bit of a chameleon. You have to understand how things work, and you have to find a way to adapt to that and thrive with that. And th th there certainly is a little bit of a divide, at least I've seen, from a leadership perspective in the workplace when it comes to that point. I think I would agree with sort of 80% of what you just said, Chris. I think I think the, the, the nuance or the piece which I would sort of um, not necessarily identify with is that there are times when, um, you know, a culture can be um, part of the problem of a business. Um, and at times that culture needs to slightly, you know, change or develop um, in order to get the best out of the business. So if you think about a business that's um, – in rapid need of turnaround, let's say, you know, really struggling financially. Um, you sometimes, you know, if you have a culture that's incredibly collaborative and wants to spend a lot of time debating things, um, that may be completely at odds with the necessity of the business in need. So, I, I, but the premise of your point, which I agree with entirely, is, you know, generally speaking, culture trumps strategy, you know, in every business I've worked in. So if you have a strategy that's very well thought through, laid out very clearly but the you know it doesn't the culture doesn't actually incorporate it into the way it works you know you very often see the chief executive leaving the business and somebody else coming in rather than the business actually succeeding and the and the results being improved so um i think in that environment it is sensible as a leader to really consider the role of culture and how you do have to adapt not just you know yourself but the you know your leadership team to the culture that already exists, um, as much as um, you can, you know, change it. Well, and I think that's a terribly valid point, you know, and I know you've spent at a couple stops in your career, you've been in a situation that were largely turnaround scenarios for the company. And, and I found myself in a few of those as well. And as a leader, one of the questions you do need to ask is, is this culture serving the company's needs? And I guess to to my previous point, maybe to amend that a little bit, you know, that makes the assumption that the culture is is healthy and does work for the business. So there's a little bit of a different 
I, I guess, approach depending on the, the stage or the health of the company. But when it comes to turnarounds, mm. leading in turnarounds is a, it's a little bit of a different thing. And it's a topic I'm fascinated by. Because one of the things that, that obviously leaders really need to do is instill confidence in the people that ultimately they're leading. And when the financial results or whatever results aren't necessarily there, that mm. confidence can be a little bit of a hurdle. So for, for you as, as somebody that has been in turnaround situations and has ultimately captured the confidence of their teams and has taken a very, very brave approach, I guess, for, for lack of a better term. When you're in these situations, what is what's one A, one B, and one C on day one when when you're trying to ultimately turn a company around? Uh, so I, I would say um, uh, there's a couple of things. So you can cut me off if I start to ramble. But the first thing I would say is how closely aligned is the company's plan and the company itself? And when I say the company, what I really mean is you know the team of people that makes up that business. How closely aligned is that team to the customer? Do they have a very clear view of what the customer's attitudes and needs are? Do they understand that to the core of their being so that and and therefore how whatever particular business it is you're involved in is going to better meet those needs than anybody else? Have you clearly identified that? And I'm always surprised, not just in the companies I've worked in, but in, in all companies when talking to people, you know, over dinner parties or you know, where you meet, uh, you know, in the airport or whatever, very often it's unclear how well that customer is really understood within companies, even very successful companies. So, and, and what it is that they do inherently very differently than um, their competitors. So step one for me would be, have you identified that? If you have identified that, then it tends, step two tends to become a conversation around how well are you executing against that plan? You know, have you got a, a system in place and processes that back up that plan and actually enable the company to be its very best in, in meeting those customer needs. And uh, again, you know, that, that can be variable. Um, there's a fabulous book on this called uh, Change the Culture, Change the Game, sure. written by Connors, Connors and Smith. I don't know if you've read it. Um, but if you haven't read it, I would recommend it because they have a relatively simplistic, all best models are, but they have a relatively simplistic model, which basically says, you know, a company has the results that are perfectly aligned to its culture. And what they mean by that is, you know, you have a set of results that your organization is driving. There are a number of actions the you know, individuals across your team are taking that are delivering the results that you're getting. And most organizations and many leaders will spend a lot of time focused on what the actions are, and what the results are. And if the results aren't what you want, we define a different set of results that we want, and then we tell people to make different actions. And, and the, the difference in the book that uh, Consul Smith wrote, which I found really fascinating, is they sort of go a level below action. So if you imagine this as a pyramid with results and actions, the top half of the pyramid, they basically say there's a, there's a bottom half to the pyramid, which is the thing that drives the actions you take are the beliefs that you hold. And the beliefs you hold are created by the experiences that you have. And very few organizations or very few leaders, in my opinion, always spend enough time focused on the experiences to really change the beliefs within the business that then result in a different set of actions. So if I give you an example to try to demonstrate my point, you know, if I'm holding a Q&A session at the end of a town hall meeting and I say to the guys, look, guys, you know, the reality, the action I want is, by the way, for them to ask open questions that, you know, and to really get an understanding of what we're trying to do as a business so that, you know, they can really have clarity and transparency. That's, 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 that's the result. You know, they've got real clarity and transparency, what's going on. And so the action I want is questions. If the belief they hold is that AJ say, is saying, let's do an open question session, but he doesn't really mean it, they're not going to ask a question. The action will not be there to ask a question because their belief is he doesn't really mean it. So the result is they don't have clarence, clarity and transparency of what the business is. So imagine in that scenario, and they hold that belief, by the way, because they've had a ton of experiences historically. Perhaps they've asked a question and been slapped down at some point. So there's experience not just with the individual, but others who've watched individuals who've got that belief. So imagine if I stand up and say, I'm a new CEO. I really want to make sure this is trans. You ask any question you like. And the first question they ask you is, you know, how do you justify the salary you earn? You know, and, and you slap that question down. Well, I really don't think that's relevant or important, blah, blah, blah. 
then what you've done is you've actually just confirmed all the experiences that they previously had. Their belief remains unchanged. So the action doesn't change and you don't get a different result. Now, that's a very simplistic example. But if you imagine in a broad business construct, how many, how many things are being done every day that drive a certain set of experiences? Those experiences trump, you know, any result that you want every single time if the beliefs don't change. You know, and I so step two is a long way of saying step two is about understanding how the culture really gets in the way of us executing in the way we want. So for my step three really is what are the beliefs that are held in different parts of the business about the things we're trying to do? And what are all the technology process and people issues, experiences going on that are causing people to hold that belief? And if you really want to change that belief, you've got to change those experiences. You know, there's there's a funny thing you pointed out there very well, and, and I probably would have, would have used the term values. Um, I don't think I've really worked for any business, maybe since my time at Disney, where the the values of the business were clearly defined. And it seems like one of these very soft things, or it's, it's like, you know, mission statements, value statements, all of that. But values are so critical, because when you have a company of 50, 100, maybe even 100,000 people, do you know, taking part in hundreds of activities every day without a thorough understanding of that value system, without understanding these are the three to four things that we must do, that, that we care most about, and all of, our, all of our decisions, all of our actions have to align with these four things. You can't expect the, the entire unit to, to work cohesively. But for whatever reason, I think a lot of businesses aren't terribly proactive about defining that. And you know, ultimately, when you're, when you're running a large business, you're really probably only as good as, as, as your slowest people. It's you know, b- basic operations in that regard. And so you have to have a very simply understood construct for them to bump their actions up against if they want to be even the least bit effective. For whatever reason, I think businesses are very, very weak when it comes to, when, when it comes to taking that step. So when you look at, at Pier 1, for instance, do you guys have a, a clearly defined value system so that everybody bumps all of their actions up against that so that we know that whatever we're doing as it pertains to, to customer experience must meet these four criteria? So um, so when I arrived, the business has a very uh, uh, clearly laid out set of values that's described as the compass. And uh, the compass laid out the, the mission of the business, the values of it, et cetera. And, and as I read it, I couldn't disagree with, with most of it, to be honest. I agreed with most of what was written. Uh, I think the challenge I would observe you know, for myself personally is that when I actually saw the behavior in the organization, that the culture of the organization wasn't necessarily being formed by the values, but the culture of the organization was continuing along separately from that sort of stated set of values. Um, and so part of our, uh, part of my job is to make sure that we have a, mu- a much tighter, simpler you know, description of what we want to stand for so that um, the organization can, as you say, um, put every single action they take up against that lens and, and just self-check whether we're therefore delivering things. And typically people can remember three to five things. So if you've got 12 values, you know, forget it because people will remember three to five. So we need to, I think we need to slightly reduce that. We're involved in that work at the moment as to what that is. And it'll be somewhere in the three to five range, but it won't, it won't look to completely throw out what we did before because much of what was done before was actually exactly right. It just needs to be simplified, I think. So you you use the word simple in there a couple of times. What role does simplicity play in leadership? And the reason I say that is because you know, I, I, I've been a couple places now where the business model and things of government have been incredibly complex. And I think there's this pervasive thought that the more complex something is, somehow that means that, that we're all smarter or that it's better because if it's, if it's very complex, you know, it's, it's more premium or more premium product. And I actually argue the other side of this, that the best businesses and the most significant and impactful businesses are those that are very, very simple to operate. So you touched on simplicity there. When when you're taking a leadership role with, with Peer One, and, and when you're trying to to effectively, I don't want to say transition a culture, but but marry a culture with the visions and ultimately with the customer experience, what level does simplicity play in that? <laughs> so um, so it plays a very important role. Um, I mean, it sort of goes without saying, I think, given your question. But I mean, I I think in retail as a whole given the complexity that exists across many SKUs and many stores, many customers, 
the simpler you can get things, the easier it is to actually enable everybody in the organization to get behind it. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, we can take a decision to change a promotion in, a, in an office environment because the spreadsheet says it's the right thing to do. But until you've worked through how that change is brought to life in the system, how you're actually going to communicate it in a store environment, and how a store associate who may only be working six or eight hours a week, you know, coming into a, a, the store understands what they need to do and how it works, you can never be really confident that, that gets put in front of the customer in a way that the customer A, understands and B, is motivated by. So everything has to be really uh, simplified to the greatest extent possible. And, um, you know, we, we use a phrase, uh, you know, better, simpler, cheaper to try to govern everything we're thinking about. You know, how do we make it better? How do we make it simpler? Those two are often very interrelated. And then how do we make it cheaper so we can run more efficiently? Um, and it's one of those trite phrases which is helpful, but doing it is actually much harder than people sometimes uh, consider. Oh, ab absolutely. But it's, it's a great framework, and it's a simple framework. And just so something like that, which seems maybe even flippant or, or, or very, very light to some people, that simple framework can make all the difference in the world. So I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by the idea of simplicity in businesses. Switching gears here just a little bit, when you are building out a leadership team, so with you as the CEO and you're building out a leadership team, is there a single trait that you value above most in, in the folks that you look to bring onto your team? Yes, I think um, transparency. I was trying to think of the right word. It's sort of integrity, trust, transparency also thrown into one. It's that sort of that, that broad integrity piece. But the trouble is integrity is such a, has such a lot of negative connotations around the phrase. Mm -hmm. Uh, what I mean by integrity is is people that are are transparent um, and open um, and um, you know very um, very prepared to stand by their own views on things. Uh, whether it's seen as positive or negative doesn't matter. Um, whether it's supported by others doesn't matter. You know they have a, they have an integrity to the way they think and the way they communicate and the way they take accountability for stuff. Um, and that's very, very helpful because the best teams I've worked in and been part of and that you know, I've led are those where you have people with different technical skills that come together as a team that absolutely is there for the betterment of each other within that team. You know, you win together, you lose together. Uh, and it's, it's seen that way. And you always get sporting analogies that get brought to the front in all these sort of like um, business conversations. But part of the reason for that is because there's so much read across, you know, you know, if you're if you're playing in a in a team or you coach a son's soccer team or American football, whatever is your sport of choice, you know, you can very quickly see the kids that are, you know, the clear, you know, sort of like really strong players and then those that are slightly weaker. And to your point, the teams are strong as its weakest link is sort of true. But if you think about the way you interact with those kids, you know, if you build those kids up and actually give them a couple of skills that makes them discernibly better, you see their whole attitude and the way they embrace the game, the way they embrace their fellow teammates and the rest of it, you know, raised to a higher level still. And I, you know, watching, you know, Little League or, you know, playing in sport yourself, I'm amazed how many times a less skilled team wins a game because it plays as a team versus teams where you may have three or four absolute star players, but, you know, the team as a whole does not win. And, um, you know, and that's partly because they typically don't play as a team to the same regard. Um, and uh, I think that's true of a leadership team in business environment. You know, the team as a whole has to play together and you'll probably be stronger than just having one or two superstars and then the rest that are slightly or, or viewed slightly less, you know, worthily. You know, that it's funny because that brings up um, a, a great story or I guess paradigm that I've been told now by a couple different folks, but I was told by uh, originally. Um, by a friend of mine who's, who's a very high-ranking military member. And so I don't know if you're familiar with Navy SEAL training, um, but there is, there's a, kind of the, the introductory phase, basically the, the, the basic portion that you need to get through in order to, to move on and, and properly qualify for the SEAL teams is called BUDS. And BUDS is, I'm, I'm going to say it's, it's six months. I think it's six months, but whatever it is, it's a very grueling um, and, and physically demanding period in San Diego. And you, you do a lot of work in teams. And one of the things that they have to do is what's called surf passage, where you're paddling with wooden paddles, these heavy inflatable boats. 
And basically, you have to get out. You have to get over the waves, which in Coronado, in the part of San Diego where, where they are based at, it, waves are very, very high. And so you do these races out. You get out, you pass the surge, and you come back in. And what they have found in, geez, I think they've had 300 classes go through BUDS now, is that at the beginning, you always have one, one boat crew, one team that wins every single time, and one team that loses every single time. And then what they do about halfway through is they take the leader, the, the boat crew captain, essentially, from the winning team and the losing team, and they swap them. And without fail, that team that was losing, that was populated with the quote-unquote losers, that now has th- this leader, suddenly they start winning every single time. And it, it was because of that that the idea of leadership really hit home to me and just how important it is. And, and it becomes less about the individuals you, you have on your team and more about the way you enable them. To, to work together. And that's really what being a leader is. It's, it's really nothing more than enabling people to do their best work in line with, with the mission that you have. But what, one, one thing you touched on just a second ago, when you talked about transparency, within that, would you say is included also immediately and forthrightly bringing bad news to the surface? Yes. I mean, and, uh, and it's one of the most important traits, I think, of a leader, which is, you know, when you ask questions, you're trying to understand why something is or isn't working. If something's working really well, you want to understand it well so you can do more of it. And if it's not working, you want to understand it well so that you can actually learn from it as an organization to either pivot and change what you're doing or, or to just not do that again, not to repeat it. So you know, getting to the truth, the brutal truth, is really urgent and important in most business situations. But I'm always surprised by how reticent um, – you know, people are to actually do that um, and to admit that, you know, something hasn't worked almost for fear that, um, you know, it reflects badly on themselves. In my experience, it's not the it's not the failure that's that reflects badly on an individual. It's how the individual chooses to respond to that failure, because you either learn from it and move on at pace, which, let's be honest, is the whole purpose and thinking behind um you know, the idea of software development, moving to an agile structure, mm-hmm. you know, you fail fast, learn, you know, throw it out there, see what works, you know, you know redevelop and carry on. And, and it's true, I think, in, in business. So that starts and finishes with someone being prepared to transparently say, I didn't get that right. Um, as best I can see, it's for the following reasons. And therefore, this is what I think we ought to do about it. But what do you, what do you think? What ideas do you have? And uh, and yet so often teams have people in them that aren't prepared to to do that. And what's really amazing to me, Chris, is when you see where you see a team of people that do that are prepared to do that, you know, the, the team develops so much faster. And and typically people don't jump on blame or rest of it. They become, you know, very focused on how do we change? How do we pivot? What do we do to help support? Um, and, and, and therefore you perform to a much higher level. There's no absolutely no question. Yeah, the, the the rapport you build from that is is remarkable. And in fact, I remember um, what one time. So so for for, for those of you that, that don't know, and I'm sure m- most of you don't, um, at at Sears there was a weekly meeting basically that that m- most of the senior executives had to go in and present. And I went and presented one week, and I don't remember the issue. There there was something was either misreported or something was wrong on one of my slides, and. Um, I did not have a pleasant and enjoyable time in the meeting after that. Let's just let's just say that. And I remember I went back and and I sat down with my team and we talked about it. And as the leader, I put the blame solely on myself. And it was one of these situations where I I had you know a bunch of other demands, so I didn't get a chance to to proof the the deck before it went out because we were up against a deadline. So it just got sent directly. And I remember immediately after that, you know, after I had taken the blame on myself. And, and hopefully created an environment where it wasn't necessarily about not bringing bad news to the surface. But I remember three or four different people from that team came to me individually after and all tried to take the blame on themselves. And I remember thinking at the time, this is such a good thing because we have so many people that want to display ownership for this, that ultimately feel that they have a semblance of responsibility, not only just for themselves, but to the rest of the team. And that ultimately is, is the best spot. That, that I think you can really get into. Um, so as a leader, we have to be so deliberate with the way we create that culture. We have to create that culture where it's open, where the blame falls on us. No, nobody else is going to get the blame here. Nobody else is going to, to, to wear it and you know, get publicly fired and humiliated, whatever that is. 
because mm-hmm. it's when they have that confidence in their environment that they can really be at their best. Mm. I, I think that's true. I agree 100%. Yeah, I think a leader should always be the person who is at fault when something is wrong. And uh, the team should always be those that are given credit when something goes well. Um, and uh, you build an emotional bank balance, um, which is very positive if you can live up to that standard. We all fail at that, I think, on a regular basis. But the more you can succeed at that, then the better. Sure. I agree. So something you talked on a little bit earlier was that was the idea of failure. And failure is something that I absolutely love, not, not because I enjoy failing, but because it's the, simply the best teacher that, that we have. And when it comes to either in your own personal career here or in, in folks that, that, that either have worked for you or you're potentially looking to hire, how do you approach the topic of failure? Is it, is it one of these things that's an elephant in the room we try not to talk about? Or is it something that we just embrace and we say, all right, we screwed it up. We learned from it. We're never going to do it again. Now we know better than we could have otherwise. Uh, this is one of those topics that fascinates me because we've all we've all lived through either being a child learning to ride a bike or having children who you've taught to ride a bike. And it's like, you know, you sit the kid on the bike, if it's your son or daughter, and you take the training wheels off and you sort of run along beside them as they're pedaling like crazy. And, and, and they start to ride that bike for two feet, three feet, and then they fall over. You know, they, they, they fall off. You know, how many of us in that situation jumps up and down getting angry about the fact the kid's fallen off you know it's, we don't we don't we don't do that at all we we, we innately you know sort of like well hey well done that's brilliant you did two feet you know it's fantastic you've never done two feet before you know and next thing two feet becomes three feet the kid gets back on the bike you know they, you start again you know you go into a business environment and you know if it was the same scenario you know you'd fall off the bike after two feet and it would be like so what went wrong? So who took their feet off the pedals? Why, why did the handlebars move? You know, what was, you know, so, you know, you touch on something that is true, but it's just, I find amusing because as adults, we completely grow out of um, recognizing, you know, the way to best learn and the way to best reward effort because we get so concerned about, you know, our output results, blame, you know, not looking worse than the person on the other side of the table and all that kind of nonsense. Um, So, you know, we have an issue within our business uh, around availability. Most retailers do, you know, so we don't have the products that we want in the stores where we want them, where we've got customers wanting to buy them. And so every time you can improve, um, you know, that situation, improve your availability, you know, you get sales. Now, you can look at that one of two ways. You can either say we've got a real problem with availability and why is our availability so poor? Or you can look at it and say we're going to celebrate it every time we find an out of stock. Because if we find an out of stock and we celebrate finding it, you know, more, 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 more times than not, we'll put a product in that place because we found that we found the hole. So, you know, how do you move to that positive, uh, proactive, it's a good thing to find the problem because we can then fix it? Um, you know, and I think there's those sorts of things you need to be looking for all the time in business. You know, how do you, without being trite and being seen to celebrate things which, you know, you shouldn't be celebrating and, and can be, you know, extremely, you know, damaging to a business. How do you recognize that it's just an important part of learning and make sure that the learning happens? I mean, it's very different if you make the mistake two, three, four times and the business isn't learning. That's a whole different issue. Sure. But when you're when you're focused on these things, it, it, it I always find it amusing. But it's one of those things where I try and do the best I can. But I, I can tell you, Chris, if you did this interview with other people that work for me, I'm sure they'd be able to give you dozens of examples when, you know, I was not <laughs> supportive of you know, mistakes <laughs> of at all. You know, so it's one of those things you inherently know in yourself, but we probably live to a slightly different standard in practice. And you have to sort of rein yourself in and sort of be very intentional in the, in the conversation. And this comes back to that that pyramid idea I shared at the beginning about you got to really focus on those experiences that are people having. If you want to change that belief, sure. if you want people to have a belief that says it's okay to own up to making a mistake, you've got to make sure the experience you give them doesn't, you know, change or doesn't, you know, go completely in the face of that belief you want them to have. And uh, to your point, you behaved, you gave them an experience where their belief was it was okay. And therefore their immediate response was to step forward and say, you know, it was my fault. I should have you know, done more. Um, that's good. It, it was just, it was one of those moments that, you know, and we were in, you know, we were, we were in a little bit of a battle at, at the time. The company was not doing terribly well. And I just remember sitting back thinking, you know, we're, we're, we're getting this. And, and it was a terribly rewarding moment. So 
for for that and and frankly for that team i will uh i I will obviously be forever grateful but you you do touch on on this idea of reflection as as a leader and and frankly i think reflection is a little bit of superpower but it really takes that sober mind to reflect and look at yourself and say what did i do better what should i have done better and i'm not sure that that for a lot of us you know we sit down at the end of the day and take five minutes and really think through that and you know the funny thing is that's where the learning that's where the development that's where the improvement really takes place it's very liberating becoming a chief exec i would say that because once you become a chief exec there isn't anybody else to blame it is all your fault ultimately so you know there is no mileage to be had or no um you know worth to be had in trying to identify someone else or something else to blame because it all reports to you so there's always something that you personally could have done better i mean i had somebody walk into a room the other day and tell me that they you know, sorry they were late, but you know, traffic was dreadful. And it's like, you know, the, the responsibility is the key reality is you just didn't leave home early enough. Now, you may have left home at the same time you normally leave home, but today you just didn't leave home early enough. So the, the person who just takes natural responsibility would come in and say, I'm sorry, I'm late. I didn't leave home early enough. But it's amazing how our natural instinct is to blame traffic yeah. <laughs> or something else. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, and, and, and fairly quickly, as a, as a chief exec, you get to realize that actually there isn't anybody or anything else you, you can blame because <laughs> you can affect everything yourself. So ultimately, it is all your own, uh, your own fault or your own problem. And that is actually liberating because you waste so much less time even thinking about you know, how, to, how to construct things in that way. That's such an interesting point. And I know you obviously have to deal with earnings calls and all that stuff. You know, there's... There, there's nowhere to hide. And the funny thing about it is, as a CEO, nobody's ever going to be good enough. You know, there, there's always going to be, well, okay, well, you, you had this earnings. Well, why didn't you have this? Or why wasn't it more? Like, there, there really is no finish line. So at some point, it just simply becomes about finding satisfaction and fulfillment from the process and, and, and the way you go about things and the way you develop and the progress you make, rather than just getting to a very finite end, I think. One of the things I find when I get to talk to really great leaders is that they're really, really good at work, but oddly, they're almost better leaders at home. And I know you've got three kids. I have three daughters. Yeah, three, three daughters. Um, and, and one in college now, and then, then you have the younger ones. When it comes to, to the dad you are, the husband you are, do you take a deliberate leadership mission in, in mind. I guess what, what I mean by that is, you know, we, we go to work and we talk about, all right, here's how I'm going to lead my team. Here's our, you know, the culture we're going to set. How do you take that same mindset home and use it for the betterment of your family and for, for your children? Uh, well, I think the thing that I don't have at work, which I have at home, uh, is a fabulous wife. <laughs> and actually, you know, I think, um, well, one, I couldn't do what I do without uh, my wife you know, supporting me um, in it. Um, there aren't necessarily, you know, there aren't necessarily women prepared to move all over the world for somebody's career, and uh, mine did. So and that's the first thing. But the second thing is, you know, wives are very good at pointing out, you know, issues as are kids. So you don't have any of that, uh, what I would call <laughs> false modesty or false humility that you sometimes see in a business environment. So because, you practice radical transparency at home. Well, they practice it on my behalf. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, I, if I've got a problem or a fault or a rest of it, you know, it gets pointed out pretty quick and, uh, and rightly so. Um, you sometimes as a chief exec, one of the things you struggle with, or I struggle with personally, as a chief exec, sometimes I don't feel I'm getting to hear the truth on things. You know, I, I get a very nuanced response or I might say something and it gets filtered before it, you know, gets translated to other people in the business. And you're always struggling with finding ways to compensate for that and to really be sure that you're listening at the right level in the business to pick up on things. Um, you don't have to worry about that in a home environment. <laughs> you know, your kids will tell you very quickly when they think you're wrong. Um, and so I actually see that as a, as a real help. I mean, you asked a specific question about how I try to lead. Um, I'm a Christian. I, you know, my wife's a Christian. So we have a sort of a, a family that is, you know, sort of has a strong faith. Uh, and that helps provide a framework, frankly, for how we try to, you know, uh, lead our kids and how we try to to lead ourselves as a family, um, but I think the thing that you know you know really helps most, or you come to realise as you get older, is the better your own self awareness, um, the better your engagement you know can be and the changes you can make, and uh, you know you come to realise that because your kids know you love them, then the fact that you discipline them or you point things out to them which are particularly positive 
you're doing it with very good intentions, which is to improve them as as kids and ultimately, in my situation, for them to grow into better women as a result. Um, and they may not like it at the time, but the one thing they have absolute certainty about is that you love them and you're doing it because you think it's the right thing. Now, yeah. they may disagree that it's the right thing. They may not think you're as a you know, very modern parent and all the rest of it, but you know they at least don't have to question where you're coming from in terms of love. And I think that's the big difference because in a work environment, People don't always necessarily believe that you're doing stuff, you know, with positive intent. Um, you don't have that love factor, which means yeah. that they they forgive some of the negative behavior because they know, you know, where you really stand on them as individuals. Um, and therefore, they listen differently. Um, one of the ladies that works on that uh, sits on our board is a lady called Cheryl Bachelder. And Cheryl used to be the CEO of um, you know, Popeye's, the uh, quick sure. service restaurant chain. Very, very successful career at Popeye's turnaround and then sort of 10 years of pretty stellar results. Um, but she wrote a book um, called Dare to Serve. And, 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 you know, again, it's a great book. Um, but if you read it, the, the sort of the inherent nature of this is as a leader, if you're serving those people on your team and in the business and you're genuinely serving them, you know, to try to make them better, to do the best for them, to help develop them, you know, People will come to recognize that. They'll come to really value that. And actually, they'll give of you far more than they would otherwise do themselves. And uh, and I think that's a very valuable model and, and lesson for all of us. What I'm trying to do in my business is I'm trying to get the organization to stop thinking about the CEO in a hierarchical sense, where the CEO sits at the top of a triangle or a pyramid, and then decisions come down the organization. I'm trying to get the organization to think about you know, the people that actually touch the customer. So in our stores, it's our associates that actually engage with the customer, whether it be in a store associate, whether it be a customer relations person, or whether it be, you know, the website, you know, page operates. Yeah, they are the ones that actually touch the customer and therefore our most important associates within the organization. And then if you invert the pyramid and think about them, you know, we've got 14,000 associates in our business. If you think about them interacting with a customer, the rest of us in this sort of inverted pyramid coming down to me ultimately as the CEO, we're only really there to help remove the barriers and hurdles and things that get in the way yeah. of those individuals being brilliant. If you can make them brilliant, everything else will take care of itself. And, and we really exist to remove the, the hurdles and barriers that gets in the way of them doing that. That's a complete mind shift for most organizations where it tends to be, you know, stuff comes down the pyramid from the CEO to the executive team, et cetera, and gets done, gets executed, gets married, rather than thinking and seeing your role as one to enable the people that report to you to be more effective. And, and I mean, I will, I'm sure, fail at this until the day I, you know, die. But, you know, what I try to focus on is how do I make those around me more effective as a result of me being there than they would be if I wasn't? Uh, and by doing that, how do they help people be more effective around them? So it's um, it's a never ending challenge and uh, it's an ongoing journey. But uh, that's what I'm trying to do. Isn't that that's that, that's such an interesting point, and frankly, because one, I think because it's not very prevalent. But this idea that when, when we go to work every day, you know, it can become very easy for it to be about us. I got this meeting I've got to get to. I've got this presentation I've got to get ready for. I've got this report I've got to get out. But when you just make that fundamental shift in terms of I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this to this person needs this, I need to do this for this person, you start thinking more holistically about the people around you. And suddenly all those things that you were burdened by that you had to get done, suddenly everything just falls into place. It, it all becomes smooth. It all just gets taken care of and, and everything works just fine. And you know, I, I think maybe the idea we've heard it talked a little bit about in the past, I want to say it's uh, servant leadership is one of the terms that gets thrown around quite a bit. Mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. And that's really what it is. But it's it's just simply like you've said a few times now. It's about putting people in the best position for them to succeed individually. And suddenly everything else becomes very easy. The challenge is that um, for most of us, myself, and definitely, but for most of us, I think it's it's hard to operate in that way. It's not natural to operate in that way. And therefore, it takes energy and effort. And the problem with that is, when times get tough and the stress builds, you know, we tend to revert to, uh, you know, a, a different mind structure construct, you know, which can be far more directive and far more, you know, and, and in doing that, 
you can undo so much good work that's gone before, you know, because um, and that's the piece where I was sort of trying to talk about in terms of family. The family instantly forgives it because they understand the love that exists yeah. in a business environment. You've got to build a rapport and a, a sort of an emotional bank balance with the teams, which means that it gets forgiven just as quickly because they, they know what you're trying to do and they know what's uh, what you're about. Um, but I don't think it's something it's certainly not something I can do and claim to do faultlessly all the time. Um, yeah, it's an ongoing challenge. Well, and it's funny because that is something that looking back at Sears, I think very much about in terms of what you did on the Kmart side. From the, from the time you got there to the time you ultimately departed, there was a fundamental shift in the vibrance of that, of that team on the Kmart side. The excitement that you were able to create, you know, to, to use your words, built up that bank balance. People became more emotionally invested in the success of the company that way. They became more emotionally invested in the success of each other. And it, it was largely because of your deliberate um, goal and your deliberate actions to really change that culture around. So I, I do think that's a very good depiction of, of what you're talking about there. So in, in the interest of time, because I, I know you've, you've got a ton going on, just three quick questions that, that I like to ask people um, just to get to know them a little bit more personally. So first and foremost, what is the most impactful book you have ever read? And that could be anything, whether it's life, work, whatever. Right? And so, maybe, to, maybe to, to ask it a little bit differently, what is the book that, that you give as a gift the most? Yeah, no, it's the Bible. Uh, there's no need to think about it for very long. Sure. It's, uh, for me, for me personally, it's the Bible, Never, you know, on so many levels. Um, if you were looking for a business book, it would probably be, um, well, Good to Great by Jim Collins was a great book, although it's, it's getting a little bit dated now. But it's, I think the, the lessons in it are just as relevant now. Seven Habits for Very Effective People, another one for Steve Covey, which is a, a great book. Um, you know, I talked about uh, Change the Culture, Change the Game earlier, which I think is, you know, very helpful for leaders. And then the only one I, the other one I sort of really sort of give as a gift is a book called, it's just, just literally entitled Emotional Intelligence mm -hmm. by Daniel Goleman. I think it's Daniel Goleman. I may have got that wrong, um, which is, again, a very good book in terms of helping a leader think about their own self-awareness and how that enables them to better develop others, better develop themselves, manage themselves, and get to better results. So um, those would probably be the top four. You know, you, you talk about the Bible. I am endlessly fascinated um, by, by the Bible in, in, in two ways. One, I mean, obviously because of the sheer size of it and the magnitude of it, but how we can spend our entire life studying something and still continually take something different and, and something meaningful away from literally the same five-word chunk. <laughs> it it is it's mind blowing in that regard. But I think about that about this a lot from a leadership and a business perspective. It truly is one of the best leadership books <laughs> ever written. And it's funny. I, mean, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I'm like, even if you don't believe a thing in this, there are so many leadership principles that you could take away in this. And it's it's really funny to me in that regard because I don't think it it really gets gets spoken about in in that perspective. But it's it's a true gem for leaders. It really is. Yeah, it is. There's no question. Sure. So for you personally, what does success look like? Uh, well, that's one of those questions that you have to frame up in terms of, you know, success for me in a home environment versus success of business versus, success, you know, I, you know, because it'd be a different answer to each of those questions. But I'm, I'm assuming for a second that your question is oriented around business. Success for me in a business environment, given the job I'm doing at the moment, is to sort of turn peer one around and get us growing again. Um, the business hasn't grown for four years, and so we need to get back into growth. Uh, we think we've got a plan to do that, and we're embroiled in the execution of that plan as we speak. It's early days, but uh, you know, really for me, the next three years is going to be really around how successful we are in executing that plan and, and delivering against that. And the reason I view that as success is because it gives certainty to 14,000 associates um, in terms of livelihood, the impact on their families, you know, uh, security in terms of what they do um, at a time when that's fairly, you know, in, insecure, frankly, in retail. It uh, doesn't make it easy, but that, that, that's the sign for me that would be um, you've been successful, getting us back into growth and starting to build this business again. So the flip side of that, what is success for you personally? Well, personally, I, um, I, to be honest, I'm, all, I'm already successful as far as you know that goes. I have a, a wonderful wife who's a soulmate of mine. I met when I was 
16 and uh you know so and i've got three beautiful girls and a, a loving wider family so you know uh, all of my my parents and in-laws um, are all still alive and very much you know still part of our family so on a personal level i feel very there isn't anything else i feel i need to do to be successful um you know it's always nice to find another friend or rest of it but it's not like um, um i feel very very blessed and you guys have had quite an adventure so the last question here what is a perfect day for you? <laughs> well, a perfect day, I mean, it says a lot about how you know, ridiculous life is. A perfect day for me can be triggered by the email I receive at 7 a.m., which just gives me <laughs> just gives me the sales performance of the day before. So, you know, if the sales, if the performance was positive, you know, the day is positive. You know, if the performance was really negative, it, it always starts the day off with a bit more of a, oh. so, uh, you know, that's a slightly trite answer. But, you know, a day where you learn and develop others and actually, you know, you feel that you're personally improving and you're seeing improvement others, is always a day where I go home feeling a degree of, worth and uh and that would be the sign of a good day so i i said three questions but there is one more here throughout your career what was your proudest moment or has been your proudest moment golly my proudest moment throughout my entire career um it probably was when i was appointed as chief exec in this role it was um it's a big deal you know it's a public traded company. Um, it's what I've been working to, I guess, um, throughout my career. I, for, for many years, I've wondered whether I would be able to be a chief exec, good enough, you know, the rest of it, so the idea presented itself. And, and so I think, you know, being appointed to this role was, um, was probably, probably up there. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, I really appreciate your time. It's, it's, it's great to get caught up. And for those of you that, that, that are listening, definitely be sure to follow Alistair absolutely spend time spend money at pier one imports it's it's a very iconic i believe american brand and it's, uh, it's a brand that that certainly has a tremendous amount of upside here and uh, we're really looking forward to see what alistair does with it uh over the coming years so alistair thank you a ton for your time no it's my pleasure thank you very much for you know allowing me to do this